and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of humans. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of a husband, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Uh, last week, we were talking about the deepest desire of every human being, which is to be known and to be loved. The uh, biggest question, and therefore the deepest fear in every human heart is, am I known? Am I loved? But you only have to think about that for a couple of minutes to realize that uh, that actually leads to another even deeper question. If the deepest desire of every human heart is to be known and loved, then the next question is, known and loved by whom? And does it even make a difference? This morning's sermon is all about one central idea that it makes all of the difference in the world. So let me give you an example. Uh, there are many studies that have been done on children and their parents, and all the research seems to indicate that children who grow up in homes where their parents love each other are happier and more secure than children in homes where the parents don't love each other. So for instance, if a child grows up in a home where the parents are constantly fighting, then it doesn't matter if after yet another fight, each one of the parents comes to the child individually and says, 
don't worry, honey, mommy and daddy aren't getting along right now, but I love you so much. That child will, that child will still be um, insecure uh, to a, a more significant degree than children in homes with parents who do love each other. Now, listen, of course it's crucial that children know that each one of their parents love them. But all of the research seems to suggest that uh, even more important than that is for children to know that they're part of a love that is bigger than themselves. Friends, this morning's passage is all about showing us that we need a love that is bigger than ourselves, that even more than just being loved in general, human beings need to know that, that we are a part of, that we are caught up in a love that is bigger than ourselves. In fact, if we look around the world, we see that's actually the case. So for the past several decades now, um, sociologists and all the intellectual elites, as they studied the modern world, um, they were saying, look, as humanity advances, as, as humankind makes more progress, scientifically, technologically, economically, politically, that the more humanity makes progress, then, then the more that things like religion and belief in God are just gonna fall away, we just won't need them anymore. That is known as the secularization hypothesis. That's a big word, but it simply means that the, that the more progress we make, the less we need God. That theory has been utterly debunked over the last couple of decades. Contrary to what all the experts thought, religion is not dying away. Belief in God is not fading away. The world is actually getting more religious. And even here in America, we're seeing an explosion of all kinds of alternative spiritualities. And it all points to the central reality that human beings need to be caught up in a love that's infinitely bigger than ourselves. What is that? It's the glory of God. Now, what is that? The glory of God. We're in a series on the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. It's called the Prologue. And it's all about Christmas, that the God of the universe who created all things actually became a human being and entered history in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and as we've been going through this series, this morning, we're just looking at, at the last paragraph. Uh, it's, um, it's all about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? And why is it so important? And, and how does it actually come to us? Those are the three questions we're going to look at this morning. What is the glory of God? Why is it so important, and how does it actually come to us, okay? First, what is the glory of God? In verse 1, uh, John calls Jesus uh, the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying that Jesus is God. Um, but then, if you look at the beginning of the last paragraph in verse 14, John says something that, um, that really would have blown away any Jewish reader uh, who would have been reading this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Any Jewish person reading this back then, this would have blown them away. Why? You know, the prologue, these first 18 verses, it's, they're full of references to the Old Testament. So even the first words, in the beginning, that is a direct quotation of the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is saying that Jesus is the word by which God spoke all of creation into existence. 
Um, when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is a word that means tabernacle. Now, if you were here with us in the fall when we studied the book of Leviticus, you already have a head start on this. Uh, this is a reference to the Exodus story. It's a reference to the wilderness wanderings in the desert. The tabernacle was a recreation of the Garden of Eden. So in the biblical storyline, when God created the world, a place of goodness, beauty, and perfection, because of human rebellion and rejection of God, um, the world falls apart. We lost the presence of God. But, but when God first created the world, that, that place he created, he put a, a garden there, and he put the very first human beings in the garden. It was called the Garden of Eden. The garden was not, however, only the place where human beings dwelt, the Garden of Eden was the place where God dwelt. The garden was the place of God's presence. God tabernacled in the garden. But because of our rebellion, we lost the presence of God. But as you go through the biblical narrative, you see God rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness. Maybe you're familiar with that story. And when God gets Israel into the wilderness, he says, build me a tent. It was called the tabernacle. And it was the place of God's presence. And the way that God dwelt in the tabernacle was by means of his glory. So at the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40, when they put the tabernacle together for the very first time, it says that the glory of God filled the tabernacle. It was the glorious presence of God filling the tabernacle. The way that God dwells among his people is by means of his glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? Richard Bauckham is one of the greatest biblical scholars alive today, and one of his specialties, lucky us, is the Gospel of John. Richard Bauckham says that this word, the Hebrew word for glory, has a few different categories of meaning, and that all of those categories are related to each other. So the first category of meaning, he says, is this category of wealth, power, or um, importance. But secondly, because honor was given to people who were wealthy and powerful, then the second category of meaning for the word glory is uh, it means honor and prestige and good reputation. But thirdly, Richard Bauckham says, uh, because uh, honor and prestige in the ancient world were often manifested and demonstrated through things like clothing and jewelry and general magnificence. He says that, that really the most important meaning of glory for the ancient Israelites was visible splendor, visible beauty, and, and there's an emphasis on its visibility. In other words, it's not just the idea of splendor or beauty. It's not an abstract concept. This is a beauty that you can see. It's a beauty that you come face to face with. You, you actually behold it, and it actually catches you up and lifts you up out of yourself. We actually experience this ourselves oftentimes in um, the kinds of experiences of beauty we have in this world, like maybe a sunset that takes your breath away. Or maybe it's a vast ocean, or the sight of a lonely tree up on a hill. Whatever it is, we have these experiences of beauty, and you know how this works. So often, it feels almost as if there's something calling out to us, um, a world beyond this world beckoning us inside. And have you ever noticed in these experiences that it's almost as if they catch us by surprise? 
right? Almost as if like we're on guard against these things and it just catches us by surprise because we live in a world that's constantly urging us and telling us that things like joy and goodness and beauty aren't real. You can't trust in those things. It's a lie. You can't trust people. You certainly can't trust institutions nowadays. And that things like joy and goodness and beauty, it's a scam. Don't trust in those things. It'll only break your heart. We get hard. We get cynical. We get apathetic. One of my favorite cultural representatives of this mindset is the fictional TV character April Ludgate from Parks and Rec. I'm glad to see that you're familiar with April. I love April Ludgate. Now, you know, if you know April, you know that, that, that she's, I mean, can we just say it? She's a skeptical, cynical person. The only time she takes her eyes off of her smartphone is to roll her eyes at all of the naive, corny people around her who actually believe in stupid, foolish things like kindness and trying hard. Yay. April looks around at all the foolish people around her and she just says like, whatever. She's apathetic. She's cynical. For April Ledgate, um, believing in stuff like that, it's just not cool. In fact, her favorite word to describe the people and things around her is lame. Everything's lame. Lame means, you know, you're a fool if you believe in that kind of stuff. Joy, goodness, beauty, that, you know, those things will only break your heart if you believe in them. And I am not going to let that happen to me. But then in one of the episodes, April goes on a road trip with her husband, Andy, to the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been there, you know what happens. You, you walk out to the edge and you're just overwhelmed by the beauty. So April and Andy, they, they walk out to the edge of the Grand Canyon. They've never seen it before. And as they stand there looking at this landscape, at this vista of beauty, Andy says, wow, it's so much more beautiful than I ever could have imagined it. And April, amazingly, April says, yeah, I'm trying to find something to be annoyed at, but I'm coming up empty. <laughs> what happened to her? She just got caught up and lifted up out of herself by an experience of beauty that completely overcame her apathy and her cynicism. Now let's do a little thought experiment with April's experience. Imagine that somehow the, the Grand Canyon were able to come alive and actually look at April, and not just look at her, but notice her, acknowledge her, and then invite her deeper inside. Friends, that is just a dim hint of what the glory of God is supposed to do for us. That the, the glory of God is a visible, tangible, and personal invitation deeper inside a beauty and a love and a glory that is infinitely bigger than ourselves. That it's not just looking at, at some impersonal thing like the Grand Canyon. The glory of God is a beauty that you can see. It's a beauty that you can behold, a beauty that you come face to face with. It, it's intimacy with God. It's the very presence of God welcoming you in. Theologians for centuries have called this the beatific vision. That means the blessed vision of the face of God. When John, in the gospel here, when he says that the glory, um, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen this, his glory, what, what he's saying is that um, we're in a position now actually to understand how radical that is, that what we're actually being invited to see is the glorious visible beauty of God. 
That the glory of God that dwelt in the tabernacle, the glorious, visible, beautiful presence of God that that was so thick in the tabernacle that nobody could enter it, that, that the glorious presence of God has now manifested itself visibly in this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that when you stand in the presence of Jesus, you are standing in the presence of God and being invited into something infinitely bigger than yourself. That's the glory of God. But secondly, why is this so important? The answer really is is fairly simple. The reason the glory of God is so important for us is that this absolutely transforms all of our assumptions and notions of spirituality and spiritual experience. Let me explain what I mean. Um, When the ancient world read verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you know, it wasn't just Jewish people who would have been blown away by this. Any Greek person reading this, any non-Jewish Gentile person in the ancient world reading this, they would have been blown away too. Because notice um, when John calls Jesus the word, he uses the Greek word logos. Now we've talked about this each week because it's such an important concept. Logos in the Greek thinking world was uh, a word that they used to describe the, the rational divine principle according to which um, everything in the universe fit together and everything in the universe fulfilled its purpose. So I say this every week, a very rough analogy to the logos would be the force from Star Wars. So you know how Obi-Wan Kenobi explained it to Luke Skywalker in the very first Star Wars? He said, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. It binds the galaxy together, very ordered, very rational, very powerful, but also impersonal, and most importantly for us, definitely not physical. When any ancient Greek read the word, the logos became flesh, they would have been horrified, and I mean horrified, and here's why. The ancient Greeks believed that the spiritual world was good and noble and sublime, But the physical world, and especially our physical bodies, were lowly and ignoble and sordid and worthless. Not necessarily bad, like morally bad, but just unimportant. So for ancient Greeks, salvation meant escaping the physical world and escaping our physical bodies and being liberated into some kind of disembodied spiritual existence. Does that sound familiar? That is still the primary way that most people in the world think about spirituality. So it wasn't just the ancient Greeks. You see this in Hinduism and Buddhism and New Age spirituality. We also see this this idea very prevalent among many, many Christians throughout the world, especially here in America. That the goal is to escape the physical world, escape our physical bodies and be um, liberated into some kind of spiritual disembodied existence. Now, at a certain level, it makes sense that we would feel this way, doesn't it? I mean, go back to the biblical storyline. God created this world to be a place of goodness and beauty and perfection. But because of human sin, because of human rebellion against God, the world is falling apart. And that's exactly the way we experience this world. That because of human evil, human rebellion, it's like there's a a rip, a tear in the fabric of creation. And, And it's like the whole world is unraveling. Don't we ever feel that way? Like everything's just falling apart. We don't like pain and suffering. So of course it makes sense that we would want to escape pain and suffering. 
But this is where the gospel and really the whole Bible comes to us and says, the goal is not to escape the world. God's goal is to heal the world. Because think back to the garden. What was that? The garden was not the division of spiritual and physical. It was the union of those two things. The garden was the place where human beings, physical human beings, dwelt with God in one place. the, The spiritual and the physical were all one beautiful, harmonious union. But because of human rebellion, because of sin, that union has been ripped apart. But the biblical storyline, the whole narrative of the Bible is all about God's goal to reunion, to reunify the spiritual and the physical. Heaven and earth come back together once again. And the way God does that is through Jesus. The word became flesh. And friends, just like we were talking about with the glory of God. Understand, this is not an abstract principle. It's not just some idea floating around in our head. The word became flesh. That the way God is reuniting the spiritual and the physical is through the historical flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ, a real person, uh, a real historical being in a real time, in a real place. He is reuniting the spiritual and the physical and bringing it all back together again. You see, that's not abstract. That's a story about a real historical being. Now, um, you may not believe that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God in real time and history, but I would invite you, um, at the very least, to consider this. You know, as far as I've been able to discover, and I've I've been, you know, studying this for decades. Uh, as far as I can see, the Bible is the only vision of, of religion or spiritual practice or vision that, that, that shows us that God's salvation is coming into the world through a story and inviting us into that story. It's the only vision of salvation in which God brings salvation into this world through a real human being in a real time and place who lived and died and rose again from the dead three days later. Now, the reason this is so important is because human beings are storied beings, aren't we? In other words, we find meaning for our lives in stories that are bigger than ourselves. That's our design. That's the way we were created to find meaning in stories that are bigger than ourselves. In other words, we don't find as much meaning in abstract principles. You know, let's talk about the beauty of God. We could talk about all the different aspects of the beauty of God. You will forget it in two minutes. But if I tell you a story about April Ludgate, you'll never forget it. We're storied beings. We find meaning in stories. That's how human beings find meaning. So for instance, Andrew Del Banco is a professor of humanities at Columbia University in New York. He wrote a book called The Real American Dream. That book is a, it's really the story of how Americans throughout American history have found meaning and hope in, in, in stories. And so he goes back to the beginning of American history in in the first couple of centuries or so, Americans found meaning and hope in the story of God. It was a profoundly religious story. Then as you go throughout history from the Civil War uh, till roughly about the 1960s, Andrew Del Banco says that Americans found meaning in the story of being a nation, a great nation. So things like the New Deal or Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. We found meaning in being a nation. But then, um, Andrew Del Banco says, from the 1960s up until our modern age, he says that, that Americans have 
abandoned the bigger stories and that now we have embraced a story that says that all meaning is found in individual self-expression. That there is no big story. There is no grand narrative. You're a fool if you believe stuff like that. We're secularizing. And that therefore human beings have to create meaning for themselves, all in ourselves. Individual self-expression is where you find meaning now. And so in his book, um, Andrew Del Banco, and he's not a Christian believer, by the way, but he says this, that hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of self alone. And that therefore the modern self becomes all <laughs> and nothing at the same time. In other words, he's saying that, that finding meaning wholly within ourselves and our own individual self-expression, it can't possibly sustain us. It, that, it denies our design. We're not created like that. We're created to find meaning in stories that are bigger than ourselves. We can't possibly find the meaning that we long for all within ourselves. And so our modern Western narrative of, of finding meaning through individual self-expression is empty. It can't sustain us. It can't give us what we're really looking for. So it's no wonder as I mentioned before, that we're seeing an explosion of all kinds of alternative spiritualities, um, not just around the world, but even here and even especially here in America. There's a woman named Tara Isabella Burton, and she's been writing a lot about this recently. I find her works fascinating. In fact, she has a book coming out next year. I'm very excited to read it. But um, earlier this year, I mean, she's come out with a number of articles this year. Um, and in one of those articles, she actually surveys a lot of the spiritual practices of people, and especially a lot of young people, people who would consider themselves nuns. That's no nun religious affiliation. Um, but apparently 72% of those people who say they're not religiously affiliated still believe in God or at least some kind of higher power. It's not an atheistic worldview, okay? She says that of all these people, she studies their practices and the, and the spiritual things that they're involved in, and she says that um, rather than getting involved in, in formal religion, that a lot of these um, people could be characterized by what she calls remixed religion, or some people call it unbundling Remixed religion. So she says that um, instead of traditional religion, a member of this remixed generation might attend yoga classes, practice Buddhist meditation, read tarot cards, cleanse their apartment with sage, and also attend Christmas carol concerts and Shabbat dinners. In other words, friends, don't you see what's going on? We're created to find meaning in stories that are bigger than ourselves. That's, that's our design as human beings. So isn't it at least curious that of all the religious and spiritual visions in the world, Christianity is the only one that says God has brought his salvation in this world through a story of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose from the dead, and that we are now invited into that story. In other words, spiritual practice, spiritual belief, the, this vision means that it's not a set of rules and principles that you follow with bravura and excellence, you know, like meditation or good works. Th that's abstract. It, th the gospel says, no, it's a story about a real human being that entered time and space and has achieved the salvation of the world through his death and resurrection from the dead. Friends, there's nothing else like this in the world. It has hundreds, thousands of implications for our lives. But let me just mention a couple before we move on. First, this means that, that our physical bodies actually matter. 
This means that our physical bodies are good, that we should not despise our bodies, we should not seek to escape our bodies, because God is going to renew our bodies. It's called the resurrection. The gospel says that God cares so much, in fact, about physical bodies that he actually took one himself. Therefore, you know, body image issues are a source of tremendous struggle and pain and depression and dysfunction for, for, I mean, millions of people in our society. The gospel is good news. If you struggle with body image issues, the, the gospel is saying God doesn't just care about your soul. He cares about your body too. And he's got a plan for your body. And you realize this also means that, that what we do with our bodies and what we do to our bodies makes a difference. It matters that, that we should treat our bodies and the bodies of other people with respect with care and with dignity because God created our bodies with dignity. That's the first thing. Secondly, because God's salvation is a physical salvation, it's healing, it's renewing this physical material world. That's what the incarnation shows us. Because of that, that means that Christians of all people should be those who are most committed to the, to the good of this physical world. As an advanced sign, N.T. Wright calls it, of God's uh, future transformation of this world. That means that Christians of all people should be the most committed to acts of justice or providing for the poor or advocating for the oppressed and the marginalized or caring for our physical environment. Christians should be the very best environmentalists. Friends, like I said, this has hundreds of implications for our lives, but we need to move on. We've seen what is the glory of God It's the beauty and the presence of God made visible in this world, inviting us into a love that's bigger than ourselves. Why is this so important? Because it comes to us in the form of a story, a real human being who entered time and space, who's renewing our bodies and renewing this world. But lastly, how does this glory come to us? Because here's the question. If the glory of God is is God's beauty made visible in this world, then how does Jesus show it to us? How does Jesus make the the beauty and the glory of God visible in this world? Well, let's go back to our passage. If you look once again at verse 14, when John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, um, that is a reference to the Exodus story. And we've seen that. But John gets even more specific than that. If you look at verse 17, He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made God known. Now, here's what's going on. John is taking us to a very specific place in the Exodus story. In Exodus chapter 33, um, Moses is having a conversation with God on Mount Sinai. And Moses is really, he's pleading for God's presence in his life and among the people of Israel. And at one point, Moses says, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, let's not miss this. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you all my goodness. In other words, in God's mind, to see his goodness is to see his glory. It's it's to see all all of God's goodness. Um, But then, at the moment when it happens, when when Moses actually gets to see this amazing vision, what what does Moses actually see or experience? 
You can read about it in Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. God passes before Moses and he says, I, the Lord, am a gracious, merciful, and forgiving God, but I will never forgive the guilty. What? I'm a forgiving God, but I will never forgive the guilty. What is that? That is all of God's goodness. It's all of God's goodness. I mean, what does it mean for God to be all good? Think about it. If God is only a God of love, but not a God of justice, then he's not all good because true goodness brings justice on evil. But if God is all justice and not a God of love, then he's still not all good because true goodness loves people so much that he can't bear to see anyone perish. It's all of God's goodness. God, God, forgives everyone, but he can't forgive anyone. It's like if God were to manifest his justice in this world, then, then who among us could actually stand before God? It's like a contradiction. God says, that's my glory. It's all of his goodness. And, and when we understand that, now we understand why when, um, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God actually warned Moses ahead of time and said, okay, Moses, I'm going to show you all of my goodness, but but I'm also going to put my hand in front of you while it happens because no one can see my face and live. No one can see my face and live. To experience all of God's goodness, all of his glory, we can't possibly survive that. We can't possibly survive all of God's glory, all of God's beauty, all of God's goodness. It would destroy us if we did. But he's, he's so loving, but also so just that we can't possibly survive that kind of glory. So in verse 17, when John says, no one has ever seen God, now do you see? He's referring to this story. John is saying that, that none of us can survive the, the face of God. None of us can survive, could possibly survive the glory of God. We can't possibly survive the fullness and the beauty of God's glory until Jesus because one of the most prominent things in the Gospel of John is its emphasis on the glory of God. It's like hammer strokes over and over and over again. It talks about the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. It's one of the most prominent aspects in the Gospel of John, but one of the most mind-boggling aspects in the Gospel of John is that the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more he talks about glory. So much so that on the night before he was crucified, Jesus Christ prayed, Father, the hour of my death on the cross has come. Glorify your son. John is saying that, that the glory of God, that if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the beauty of God, if you want to experience all of the goodness of God, that, there, that you see it most clearly and experience it most powerfully on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross. The, the most brutal, violent, and, and excruciating instrument of torture ever conceived by human beings. The ugliest and most dehumanizing form of execution that anyone has ever devised. The cross. John is saying that's where you see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of God. It's on the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was foretold centuries before that by the prophet Isaiah. He had a vision in Isaiah 53. He had a vision of Jesus on the cross. And, and the Greek version of Isaiah 53 says, Behold, my servant, that's Jesus, he shall be lifted up 
and he shall be glorified. Just as many were astonished at his appearance, his face was marred beyond all human recognition. He had no no more beauty that we should desire him, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes, we are healed. Do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to behold the beauty of God? Do you want to experience all of God's goodness? Friends, look at Jesus on the cross, reconciling the love and the justice of God without sacrificing either because Jesus is our sacrifice. He absorbed all of the justice so that we could receive all of the love. And there is nothing more glorious and more beautiful than the infinitely glorious and beautiful one who took all our guilt upon himself so that he could pour all his love out on us. Friends, that is a beauty that re-enchants a culture that is empty of meaning. That is a story that heals a world that's aching for renewal. And that is a love that quiets a heart longing for something bigger to rest in. Open your soul to that beauty. Find your place in that story and rest your heart in that love. Let's pray.